Hello and welcome to the Property Roundup on iProperty Radio with myself, Carol Tallon, the show where we chat to industry experts to get a view on new trends emerging. This show is brought to you in partnership with the Property District, changing the narrative of the industry. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Satanta Landers, partner at Satanta Solicitors. Uh, Satanta, you're very welcome. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Um, Satanta, you and I had a very interesting conversation last week on foot of an article that your firm published talking about uh, planning really for self-builds and uh, in particular about this locals only rule, which is mm. something that comes up at least once a month. We've been we've been uh, recording this show for we're we're um, close to five years now, and there's rarely a month goes by when people don't talk about this, usually in a negative in, in a negative way. So you might just explain to people listening in what is Ireland's locals only rule for rural planning. Sure. Um. Well. As people out there are probably very familiar with, we have a very um, controlled planning environment around the local zoning rule. And this, in the main, is rural housing. So we're outside of the catchment of cities, towns, villages. And um, whilst there's a number of sort of iterations, the general theme across all the local authorities is that you have to, one, be a farmer or farming familial land. Two is you have to have significant local ties to the community. Generally, you have to be born there and be a member of the local GA club. Uh, different local authorities accept different um, documentation and request different documentation. So there's no kind of consistency to that. But generally, you have to have strong local economic ties working in the area from the area. And the third is that you hire somebody who has left the area, but you're returning to the area to care for an infirm or elderly relative. So, I mean, you can can see how that could happen in practice so it grows up gets a job in dublin the parents maybe one of your parents passes away and they need to return to the familial home to care for an elderly relative those are sort of the three general criteria now they're they're reflected differently in different local area plans every couple of years um but in in general those are the three sort of criteria um, Satanta, it is it, it still exists, although I'm quite sure it couldn't possibly be enforceable, but it still exists that uh, people are asked for their baptismal certs from some local oh. authorities around the country. Yeah, that's that's not unusual. Um, you see, and this is this is the sort of difficulty, I suppose. I'm from a rural area myself, I grew up in Kerry and, you know, you had the colloquialism of the blow-ins, you know, and that that's, this is kind of a, a codified planning control around the blow-ins. Um, now, there's huge difficulties in relation to that um, uh, from an Irish national perspective and from a European perspective. So if we just take them sequentially and we deal with the Irish perspective, um, those sort of controls in the rural area um, are discriminatory and they very, it's very difficult for people to challenge it because if you think about it logically, if you're from an area and you, you want to build the next village over, not close enough to the, to the family, but you know, not, not everyone wants to be in the field next door to their in-laws. So they might want to stay in the area, but there might be a better school perhaps in the local village. So they want to move down to be in around that area. Um, you're then outside of the sort of the local only rule because the catchment area is so small, it's two kilometers. Um, and that can lead to enormous 
frustration. And that frustration is also borne out by inconsistencies in the, in the local authorities' approaches. Now, there is a circular from the department saying that people like that should be prioritised, but that circular is back in 2008. So we don't have any kind of up-to-date national legislation. Now, the department has promised it. There was minister's questions in April 2023, and they had said that the 2005 um draft um, guidelines for local authorities will be updated in quarter two, 2023. Um, I checked the website this morning. It's yet to be published. Now, the last publication, and this is quite interesting, um, is the Sustainable and Compact Settlement Guidelines for Planning Authorities. Now, that's that's a bit of a mouthful. But in short, it is a sort of a, an indicator on what way national strategy is blowing, because it says, look, um, it's not rural development, but it's actually guidelines around non-rural development, so compact settlements. So we're talking about towns, villages. And the draft guidelines were published in March, and they were inviting invitations by the end of April. 27th of April, I think, was the closing date. And that national strategy is the government proposes in respect of new development that more than 50% of it will be confined to towns, villages, and those sort of locations. So it's consistent with what we're seeing on the ground in that the spatial strategy that the government has sort of defined is that we're going to move away from rural um, development and we're going to focus all development in towns, cities and villages. Now, from a planning perspective, that makes sense. If you just look at it from a, a purely planning perspective, because then you can um, put all your services in one place, you can put all your transportation hubs in one place, you can put all of your investment and your things like broadband. You know, we had a lot of criticism around the broadband um, in rural areas and how much it costs and subsidies in relation to that. But with that national strategy, it's sort of, if you just look at something with a very narrow focus and you don't actually think about, well, what are the consequences of that strategy? The consequences of that strategy is more than 50% of the population is going to be confined to towns and villages. So that is the death of the Irish countryside. And in a sort of society like ours, where nobody is more than two or three generations from the land, that is a huge change. You know, we, we are very tied um, socially, culturally, historically to our local communities. Um, you know, the, if you think of the pride that somebody from Mayo who maybe hasn't stepped foot in Mayo in 30 years has in respect to their county. You know, everyone has the dream of going back to the homestead um, and retiring there or, or having a holiday home there. And this just, this sort of strategy makes that very difficult. Um, so we can, I suppose we can confidently predict if the um, March 23 draft compact settlement guidelines is taking that view that the draft rural guidelines are going to be consistent with that because you're, you're talking about the same people who are sitting down and, and drafting this policy. Um, so that's from the Irish perspective. Now, from the European pr perspective, and I touched on this in the article, we had the Flemish decree, um, which was published in May 2013. It kind of flew under the radar because I don't think um, too many people like to um, you know, sit down for their bedtime reading and read European legislation. Um, and that was kind of an interesting case where they had um, somewhat equivalent to uh, the local only rule in Ireland, 
um, they had uh, sort of a locals only um, provision in um, in there was kind of two things that went on there. So they they had um, sort of development, and they wanted to maintain what they described as the culture and the locality and the locals in the area. So there was two sort of ways that they controlled it. One was that you had to show significant ties to the area. And this is in respect to, sorry, in the context of the sale or renting of properties. So if you wanted to sell property or if you wanted to rent property, you were restricted and confined in respect of who you could sell or rent that property to. And there had to be locals who have been in the locality for six years or had significant familial and professional ties to the area. And that was referred um, by the Belgian courts to the European Court of Justice. And the question was, um, is that uh, an attack on the fundamental freedoms of the European Union? Now, the fundamental freedoms of the European Union is there can be no restriction on the transfer of people, goods, capital services. So we're supposed to have a common market and that common market doesn't just extend to goods, but it extends to services and it extends to people. And the the logic of the European Court was, now there was a second element of that case, which I should briefly mention, um, that a certain proportion of properties that were sold had to be maintained for social housing and affordable housing, which we are very familiar with in Ireland. And that actually was a very interesting secondary part of that challenge. Now, the, the fundamental freedoms are not immutable. They can be flexible. So if there is a particular policy that you want to implement for particular social reasons, national reasons, you can do so, but it must be proportionate and go no further than what the aim of that particular social justification is. And um, the European Court said, well, what is the reason for this restriction? And they said, well, we want to maintain um, with rising house prices, we want to ensure that people are not priced out of their own local area. Objectively, that sounds perfectly fine. But the logic of the European Court is, well, this has nothing to do with pricing. You're not looking at the character of the local people and their means. So if this restriction was, okay, people from the area who earn below a certain threshold, are protected by this, that's fine. But in circumstances where you didn't distinguish between people from the area who had means and people from the area who didn't have means, and you just put a blanket ban on anyone not from the area <clears throat> buying property or, or renting here, that's a discriminatory. In other words, somebody who's not from that area can't come in, and it's not to do with price, just can't come in and get any of those properties because those properties are restricted. And that logic, um, can be applied to the local only rule in Ireland. Um, now, that decision was 10 years ago now at this stage. Uh, why hasn't it been challenged? And if you think about it logically, if you want to build a house in the countryside, and one of the reasons that you want to build a house in the countryside, it's probably because you don't want to pay the extortionate price of building a house in uh, Dublin or Cork, uh, and, you want to, and you have ties in the area. So, it is a small percentage of local purchasers that are affected, um, that don't have already familiar tiles to the area. And the cost of taking that judicial review in the first instance, you'd have to go through the local authority, 
in Board Planola, judicially reviewed to the High Court. You would then make an application, but it would be up to the judge whether or not they actually referred that question to Europe. So you'd have to make an application and you'd have to get a sympathetic judge. Then you'd have to go to Europe and, and wait for that. So, I mean, you would be delayed four or five years and it could cost you, if you were unsuccessful, more than the cost of the house. So it's, it's one of these sort of intellectual exercises until it gets before a court. Um, do I believe it's going to get before a court in the, in the, in the short term? Uh, I would find it very difficult to see how it could. That However, seems, but that seems incredibly unfair, Satana, Satana, because what you're saying there is that actually this is something that deserves to be challenged, but is not likely to be challenged because the people impacted are, by extension from what you were saying, they're uh, possibly on the lower economic um, scale, but also that you're talking about individuals, one off. So therefore, people who are pinned to their collar just to be able to resource the planning application and if mm. successful the house certainly not a legal challenge to that and that seems like a really bad reason for poor policy to exist because there's nobody well enough resourced to challenge it um well I'm, I'm not i'm not casting any sort of moral aspersions on it or any sort of policy i'm not taking a policy position on it one way or the other um what i'm saying is that in practical terms the economic cost of seeking to challenge this is prohibitive. And that is just the reality that we live in, whether we like it or not, and whether um, it's fair or not, or whether it's, Tanta, it's I, correct or I, not. I'm delighted that you're going to be impartial for this because it means then I don't have to be. So I can say that this policy seems incredibly unfair. But, you know, in saying that, though, I, I genuinely do understand the reasoning behind it. You know, I, I really do. I You know, we are we are. Um, at the the sharp edge of a climate crisis, we know that that um, this is this is not the most sustainable way to build. And I suppose I I've been following, um, say the the market you're from Kerry originally. I've I've lived for a time in North Kerry. I, you know, following the plight of people down in Dingle to build, mm. and they can't because people with ties to the area like to come back for their holidays and actually it's it's made the area entirely unaffordable for the people who want to live and and work in the local establishments and raise their family down there which is having an impact on school places and and other um you know play schools and and other uh i suppose community amenities so i genuinely do understand that however i'm also in the i also have the experience of living in rural Connemara where the people are so are are so adamant that they don't want this kind of state protection they don't want to be protected from blow-ins coming in to the point where they're actually coming together and making videos urging people from all across the country from people from outside of Ireland to come and live in their area so that they can keep their schools open so that they can keep their um, their villages alive and in fact it's something that comes up time and time again, you know, particularly in areas of rural Ireland that never had a boom time. You know, I, I was living mm. in North Kerry during the Celtic Tiger. So I only heard about that second hand. The Celtic Tiger didn't come to North Kerry. It simply didn't, except with the possible exception of visiting during the Listowel race week. That was it. Other than that, the Celtic Tiger did not visit North Kerry. Um, and, and there were so many pockets of rural Ireland that didn't experience the boom. But yet, 
had all the pain that came after it and they still haven't even recovered to any sort of equilibrium. And yet government policies are protecting them from development in their area, whereas actually development in their area is what would ensure its survival. Mm. Um, um, okay. It, it, it's There's a lot in that to unpack. The first thing I would say is that, like most things in Ireland in the last 20 or 20, 30 years, everything now is being centralised. Planning um, started to become centralised on board Panola. Uh, you always would have had the local authorities. And um, now we have planning strategies becoming centralised. And when planning strategies are centralised, um, they do not take account of all of the nuances that society has. So the simple solution is, or the one size fits all solution is never an actual solution. It just creates more problems. And this local only planning rule is well and good um, for certain situations, but it ought not be the blanket uh, application as far as I'm concerned. So there are, and this is a policy sort of question, it's, it's open to sort of policymakers to make, the, there's no difficulty in designated certain areas as they do certain areas of natural scenic beauty. They, they've, there's additional planning restrictions there. Um, and each town and each village in the particular counties will have population densities and targets and all the rest. Um, but the difficulty I see in practice is that the planners are relying on data in some cases, that it could be 10 years old. So if you're relying on a census from 2005 to do your local area plan in 2015, that's just simply not accurate data. And if you were then trying to make a planning decision for the next five years, uh, as we, we have, because they run in every five-year cycle, based on data that's 10 or 15 years ago, you can significantly um, underplan or overplan in respect of particular requirements that an area has. So, um, for example, this part of the country at the moment in Donegal, that they, they just have severe under-resourcing in respect of waste and water infrastructure. It's just a fact. Um, and a lot of the remedy for that, for so certain developments in Donegal, is the local authorities are trying to push that sort of, those services, those local services that ought to be in place um, onto the local sort of development when the development is of a certain size, they look for a substation to be put in place. And if you, in effect, strip, as they propose to do, 50% of the population from rural areas into towns and villages, well, that means that those rural areas and villages are now going to be starved of further services in the future because they don't have the population to call on um national government to say, look, these are the services that we require. So it is inevitable that even though it might be well intended from a policy perspective, if you're looking at it from a narrow um, policy perspective, but it is destructive to the countryside, to the fabric of the countryside. And ironically, the local only rule is the rule then that ends up destroying the locality. Um, there can be flexibility worked into local area plans that allows um, certain flexibility in respect of um, local area plans under the local area rule. I don't think that you, I don't think it is sensible to have a national strategy. Um, and 
let's be honest about it. We haven't had a national strategy update on this for the last 18 years. You know, it's been promised in the last six months. And um, just because the particular wind is blowing in a way now, well, it could be another 18 years before, you know, we, we, we suddenly realize, oh, God, we, we got that wrong. Um, and where is the dialogue then to, to go back and, and change that? So I, I'm, I'm, I'm so I'm so delighted that you brought up the example of Johnny Gold, though, because I think um, Johnny Gold, the people of Johnny Gold have a strong history of coming out fighting when they need to. Um, and I don't think it's a coincidence that we're seeing the push for uh, a farmer's party, uh, a farmer's political party coming out of Donegal right now. But a lot of the reasoning behind that seems to be uh, something that's echoed right across rural Ireland. And, you know, I work in the area of public consultation and community engagement. We speak to communities on the ground, um, whether it's through the development of uh, amenities like greenways or indeed new development. So we we get to hear from rural Ireland, as well as the fact that I'm from a dairy farm and I'm living in the heart of um, I, I'm living in the country. So my days are spent a lot with people who are experiencing these. And, you know, you talk about the data, but the reality is, I mean, take take the level above the local area plans go right back to our national strategy. Our national strategy is based on data that is incorrect. And we know this, by the way, from the census. And and the Taoiseach's the office has acknowledged that. And we know that there's um, there's a rectification in process now, particularly in terms of our national development plan, which should impact and filter down um, uh, to the local area plans. But the other side of that, it's not even about the the data changes in terms of numbers and population. Actually, since COVID, there's been a huge shift. And you talked about people, you know, perhaps wanting to live in rural Ireland for financial reasons. But actually, for the first time in a generation, we have a choice. You know, um, Mm. I'm so glad to hear you acknowledge because I get in trouble whenever I say it on News Talk. But the truth is we are a people who are, unless you're born and raised in one of the cities, intergen- you know, your your generations uh, from the city, the vast majority of people in Ireland um, are within one to two generations off the land. That's just the reality. And we see this because we see this through um, people not choosing apartments and duplexes. If they can't live in the country, they still want a front and back garden. They still want off street parking. We don't share space. We don't share space well, and we know that that's what needs to happen, uh, but it's not going to happen in one generation. And in fact, um, I'm not even sure it'll happen in two generations. You know, I I regularly say that, you know, me in my 40s won't choose it. My daughter in her mid-20s won't choose it. I think it's my grandchildren that may choose uh, choose urban living in a in a really urban, like not suburban setting. So I do think we're one to two generations away from where the the state wants us to be and where policy is pushing us. But it's I I think that there has to be some sort of reflection on our national strategy in light of COVID, what we learned during that time, and what we learned when people were given a choice. You touched on decentralization there. Unfortunately, I'm old enough to remember the experiments of the early 2000s mm. where the revenue and other state bodies went into decentralized offices that are now ghost ships in some of these mm. towns right across Ireland, right? So I think we can say that was a failed experiment, that that decentralization 
it wasn't backed up with all the things it needed to be backed up with. All we had were civil servants who wanted to go home. That's that's essentially all we had in the early 2000s. Uh, that was mm. the decentralization project. Today, we have so much more. We have a connected we have connected hubs of co-working spaces. We have good broadband. We have facilities. We have motorways that just make it so much more accessible. You can go from Kerry to Dublin in under three hours. When I lived in North Kerry, that was a five-hour journey. You know, things have changed. Um, but the most important thing I feel that's changed is that for the first time in, in generations, rural people were able to choose during COVID. And they chose. They chose not to be in an urban setting. They chose to be in a rural setting. So do we need to actually almost uh, almost undo the conversations that have had or start from scratch and say, right, Ireland, the population that we have now, the makeup of people that we have now, where houses exist now, where our settlements are now, how and where do people want to live and almost start from scratch rather than trying to patch together poor policies uh, and and ad hoc policies from the past that were reacting to different times, different circumstances that people found themselves in. The ability to work remotely has changed Irish people. That's just a fact. It's changed people right across the world, but it has changed Irish people. And the state just doesn't seem to want to see that. I, I think it's a bit of a more fundamental philosophical question than that, in that, do you want to maintain rural areas for the people who have grown up there to the exclusion of all other people or do you want to create a more fundamental choice um, for citizens and for EU citizens or for people who just live in Ireland as to where and how they want to live um, you know it shouldn't be a barrier and it kind of sounds a bit ridiculous when you think about it. If you it grew up in Dublin... It shouldn't be a barrier anyway, though. It's uh, To me, it's not even a choice that we respect the rights of people who were born and raised in, in um, the rural area to live in a rural area. I genuinely believe, irrespective of where your people come from, you should be able to choose where you live. Well, that that is not national policy as crafted at the moment. And, and that is not the, the way that national policy has has been developing. And it is not the way that national policy has been advancing. And let, let's, whatever about national policy, because national policy is one issue. The second issue is when you get into the bowels of the planning process itself and you get inconsistency across the entire spectrum in respect of how these national policies are being applied because you do get um, how do I put this delicately you, you may get resistance from certain local authorities who want to promote their own area in their own way um, according to the persuasions of the local elected representatives and the persuasions of the local officials that are working in the planning department so you do see nuanced approaches in respect of what you know it is not a, it it is directed to be a one-size-fits-all, but in practice, it is not a one-size-fits-all. And you can get vastly different planning outcomes from very similar facts on planning applications that are lodged into local authorities. And then when you get out of the local authorities and get into onboard Planola, we have had uh, well-publicized difficulties with onboard Planola and the time it takes to get a decision. 
and the quantum of judicial reviews that have been undertaken the last two years, such that the High Court is even setting up a dedicated section to deal with planning. So planning has become incredibly litigious and um, planning ought not be litigious. And it is that uh, uncertainty, uncertainty and inconsistency in policy and uh, lacuna in sort of joined up decision making that leads to this form of litigation, because that is an expression of people who are frustrated. Um, that's all litigation is, because if you so, have... Tanta, who, who in Ireland is not frustrated by the planning process? Um, like genuinely, and I, 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 I'm very conscious that I, I don't want to get sucked into any sort of a conversation around on board Planola, because that's, that's too big an issue. That's almost mm. too broken to try to understand what's happening. But one thing we do know is that, you know, today we're talking very much about um, self, self-builders uh, and uh, one-off homes in rural areas. Uh, the reality is we know it was announced a couple of weeks ago that on board Planola, because of their backlog, um, are now going to be dealing with the most impactful cases first, as in the ones that are going to deliver the most homes, which, to be fair, makes absolute sense. You want to try free up as many homes as possible so that we can, during a housing crisis, that we're providing homes to as many people as possible. But what it means is that for self-builders, anybody whose cases are stuck on a board planola, they just keep moving down to the bottom of, of the list. We have no time frame as to when they're likely to be decided upon. Um, and and in any event, they shouldn't be there. That That's not the mechanism for self-build. We need to get a plan right that self-builders in a certain area know if they're likely to get planning. I mean, sometimes I wonder, do we just need to come out and and acknowledge that we don't have rural planning in Ireland, that all we have is a blanket ban with some tiny exceptions and that people are putting all their time and energy into those tiny exceptions. Um, and then maybe we challenge that. Um, okay, well, I'll try and be constructive about it. But before we get to the constructive, let's let's deal with the actual sort of reality of planning at the moment. We have... tell, us, tell us about some of the cases you're dealing with at the moment, if you can. I, well, I can, but I'll have to be very careful around around that. I won't name names or local authorities, but I will tell you cer- certain facts. But we have a planning regime that is quite restrictive. So we have the local only rule in rural areas and we have very tightly defined um, criteria that it's acceptable to build in rural areas. So that's restrictive. And then, OK, we want to push everybody into the cities and the towns, but then we have incredibly restrictive planning conditions in cities and towns. We have a referral to, to Europe at the moment in respect of building height guidelines and whether particular developments have exceeding the, the, the planning height guidelines. And we've had a lot of very famous cases that were overturned in respect of building height guidelines. So we don't want to build in the rural areas and we don't want to build in the cities unless it fits into the character of the city and it isn't too high and we're not offending our neighbours overly. So what's left? You know, you either bite the bullet and say, okay, well, we're going to have urban development. But then if we're going to have urban development, we have to be able to say, well, this is the type of urban development that we want, and this is the sort of density that we want, and we, we need to have data that says that we have enough of that land and we have enough people to go into that type of development. Or we want to say, right, well, these are the areas that we're going to restrict rural development in, and everywhere else we're going to be a lot more um, relaxed, if I could use that, and we're going to be much more prescriptive in how we approach our planning. I mean, 
what ought to happen in an ideal world is you should have some assurance when you go into the planning authority that if you meet these criteria, you ought to get planning unless there are substantial justifiable reasons as to why you should not. It should almost be, um, you know, a presumption of planning um, rather than, you know, an application where you're, you're very hopeful. Whereas if we just had a, a, a kind of a streamlined planning process that it was clear to the planners who spend an enormous amount of energy um, educating the public, as they do, really, because the, the guidance is, is very, um, very difficult and obtuse. I work in planning and I can tell you it is quite complicated. The legislation is quite complicated. The legislation is um, enormous. It has been amended on various occasions and there is a lot of judicial authority interpreting various sections. Um, and it used to be worse. <laughs> I mean, the Planning Development Act was consolidated in, in 2000. So um, this is the streamlined process. And um, I suppose now to get into sort of issues that I'm seeing in practice, I had I had a couple who had made an application for planning permission of a house that was to the rear of their familial home where their um, paternal father was living. And in that local authority said that that one-off housing would be an unacceptable intensification of use because the extra car that they would have going on the regional road into Dublin in the morning would constitute an unacceptable uh, excessive development. And, you know, when you when you read a sort of decision that comes out like that, it, it, it just makes no sense. Um, I have a uh, I have a case that's in on board Planola that has been in there for about since August 2022. So we're we're at a year now. Um, and that, again, keeps getting pushed off, pushed off, pushed off. And that is a rural um, couple. One is a teacher. Um, and the her partner uh, works in the locality, and the difficulty that they have there is, <laughs> they say that the area that they're living in now was reclassified as a town in the last five years. Therefore, that strips that person's entitlement to be classified as a rural person away from them. So they've applied the, the new, um, you know, as towns and villages get reclassified in local area plan, they have applied that classification retrospectively on one of the applicants and his partner clearly grew up in a rural area, but they say that the rural area she grew up in, in the same county, is outside the catchment area for her to be considered rural to fall within the, the exemptions and the guidelines. Um, and that's the sort of thing that I'm seeing in practice all of the time, where it is such a subjective uh, interpretation of, of a planner as to how he is going to implement those guidelines. And it ought not be that way, because it is very easy um, to simply say, look, if you're from, if you're a rural person, will you keep that rural classification? And it doesn't matter where in the country that you, you live rurally. You know, you should be able to carry that classification with you, um, personal to you. And in my view, if you're a rural person and you, you come from outside of Ireland and you're an EU citizen, you should be able to carry that rural classification with you also. Um, it doesn't deny anybody. Um, it probably would be uh, seen as sort of discriminatory in some sort of elements. Um, 
but I mean, as long as you were to to say, look, this is the the way that we want to to populate or repopulate the rural areas, um, and how we want to repopulate the rural areas, or even if we have an intention to repopulate rural areas, because I don't see that that is the intention from the guidance that's coming down, and I don't think it's in any yeah. way. I, I'm glad you said that. No, I, I'm glad you said that because actually I, I don't, not only do I think it is not the intention, I think the opposite is the intention that actually I don't believe the state wants people living in rural Ireland, which might feed into the long-term sustainability looking forward a number of generations. What does it do for the quality of life, the people who are living here now? Um, you know, for like I, I see it in our own village, which, by the way, is a village in name only. All of the services, the amenities that you would think of as a village no longer exists. And I, mm. I, 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 I can remember when I moved to the area um, through Irish, the, the one of my new neighbours called from her door Thank you or welcome to the village. And I was delighted, but I was also very confused because I thought, where is the village? I'm living in the mm-hmm. country. There's no village. And actually, the people from here still call it a village, even though nothing exists that would. That to somebody driving through the area, they would see this is a village because mm-hmm. um, where once there was a school and a church and a guard and even um, a local representative and shops. None of that, none of that exists or remains open today. And that's such a source of frustration um, that uh, and this is maybe where we're allowing, uh, you know, perfect be the enemy of good. We're sacrificing people living in areas today for an ideal that we want in two to three years, uh, two to three generations time, just without having any real thought about the impact it's having on people's lives today and again we're we're just we're completely ignoring people's choice where they choose to live um <clears throat> we're going a little bit further than ignoring their choice we're denying them that choice um we are denying them that choice by a series of measures that are designed um to stop a, a a sort of a problem that doesn't exist, so it's it's not that we have such a clamour for people to go live in the countryside, such that the the locals are under siege or feel that they're in some way being moved out, as was the sort of the case in the Flemish decree. Um, we have a situation where we have made it so difficult and so prescriptive and so tight to get rural um, development planning that nobody even really knows how they're going to interpret it on a on a micro level in the local authority. And people, they don't have the energy or the time or the inclination to sort of engage in that fight a lot of the time, you know, and it is a fight. Um, I'm sure we have, you know, hundreds of and maybe thousands of cases that go through without any sort of difficulty. But um, like the dentist, nobody comes to me and when their teeth are fine, you know, I only see the problems. So I, I obviously have a have a skewed sort of opinion on on the sort of planning applications that come across my desk, because clearly there's there's a legal issue that has arisen in them or a complexity that has arisen in, in, in them. But I don't see um, 
I suppose, let me put it this way. I see far too many applications that logically don't make sense to me as to why they have, have not been approved. Um, is um, there a local authority resourcing issue? Because I spoke with Sean O'Leary of the Irish Planning Institute, a senior planner with the Irish Planning Institute recently, and he had some really eye-opening stats. He was talking about the vacancies across state planning departments, across local authorities. Now, to be fair, these aren't just for planners. They're for the um, surveyors. They're for uh, all disciplines right across the planning departments. But it was something like four or 500 vacancies right now and yet there are only 70 planners qualifying and coming out of, of third level every year. So actually, we have a huge resourcing issue um, and, and, and understaffing in our planning departments within local authorities. So mm-hmm. are we at a, in a position a little bit like on board Planola now, dare I say, where actually if a decision is forced, let it be a negative one. Um, you know, we don't have people ready to say yes. And by default, that's becoming no. Um, well, it's kind of an unusual one. If you have a look at the planning legislation and planning guidance and the whole the whole point of planning is planning is supposed to. And I see this over and over in sort of planning guidance and legislation. Planning is supposed to be community led and and local led. It is supposed to be the ordinary needs of the people that require planning. And planning is not, in reality, community-led. Planning is is driven in a particular sort of perspective and a particular sort of direction um, by the department. And I'm not I'm not criticising the department in any way. They clearly have, um, you know, uh, they have ideas in respect to how they want to deliver planning, and they're trying to service the whole country. And I understand that, and that is is very difficult. Um. Yes, maybe there is a resourcing issue. I don't know. But what can assist in a resourcing issue is clear guidance and clear um, uh, assistance for local authorities. It is very, they, you know, the local authorities love checklists and they have fabulous checklists around putting in your planning permission and to make sure we'll have you included this and there's fabulous guidance on appeals to board and all and make sure you keep your observation because you leave that for the appeal. But what they don't have guidance on is internally, well, how are we going to deal with these various types of planning applications? I haven't seen that guidance and that guidance can be created. Um, and per, I'm sure it has been created in, in various local authorities, they probably have internal working documents from people who have worked in planning a long time and said, look, here's how we're going to deal with these sort of planning applications. But it is, it is, it would be wonderful if the ordinary person had some form of confidence that there was consistency in the approach to planning. And that's all anybody requires, because if you have consistency, you have fairness. And if you have fairness, you have a lot less frustration. But it's the inconsistency is is the difficulty. Um, because it's very difficult then when someone comes into me and they says, look, sh- will I get planning for this? And I say, well, you ought to get planning for this. But I, I don't know whether you you should or you shall. You know, and they may have to go through, you know, on board Planola or in some cases, judicial review to vindicate those rights. And a lot of those cases are cases that have no place in in a high court, which is supposed to be dealing with substantial technical issues of law, and you're you're dealing with something that is just um so silly in some cases in respect of the reasons that some of them have been turned down.
Um, but then equally, um, you could have a difficulty where certain things that ought not get planning do get planning. So, you know, it's, it's not that there is any, I don't think there's any sort of deliberate malice in it, but it's just an inconsistency that exists. That is, we would hope um, that in the draft guidance that comes out that there will be some uh, clear guidance for all concerned that will will kind of alleviate a lot of these issues but um that I, sounds like that sounds like though trying to to get to the ideal whereas say on a case by case basis when you're speaking to clients how do you handle that do clients tend to come to you at an early stage or do you only see them when there's a problem as in do they do they come to you when they're considering buying or building a house i i get a mix um i would have planners that would come to me that will say look will you have a look at this development plan and and make sure that we are in some way considerate of what are the sort of judicial reviews that they could be up to challenge. So I see planners come in um, on a one-off sort of individual level. I generally see them after the local authority has rejected their planning. So they, you know, they go to a planner or they go to somebody local who assists with planning and they put together their application, they put it in and then it's rejected. And then that that's usually when I get a call because they'll either want to put an appeal into a board panola or they will want to resubmit the planning. Um, and some are very well constituted and some are not. Um, but, you know, very rarely I get one off individuals before they put in their planning. And to be frank, it, it, that's not where I ought to be, you know, because that's that's where you have your planners. Um, I'm I'm kind of deal in the more sort of nuances of of uh in planning law and um that's not to, to mean i won't assist anybody that wants to pick mm. up the phone and give me a call um but it is it is something that is frustrating in practice a lot of the times like if i can say that even though i i adore my job and i adore assisting people and i adore the complexities and nuances of law um the policies that have been adopted, I I do think, um, can be a little bit short-sighted, or rather that there's no secondary question that's asked. So the first question is, okay, well, look, what can we do about this? And it's very easy to come up with an answer. But then nobody actually says, okay, well, let's project that answer over five years or 10 years or 15 years, and what is the natural consequence of that? So if you have a rural development um, or plan or strategy that we're going to focus on spatial development well well, what is the natural consequence of that over 10 15 20 years and it can only be um rural degeneration and you know it is not uh it's not a rural strategy that is allied to something that says okay well if we're going to take a community and and focus on rural development in hubs well, then we can invest in those hubs. And then people could, you know, that would make perfectly good and logical sense to people because people then would say, okay, well, if, if we're going to centralize all of our services and our transport and all of that, allied to an investment strategy, and then we have a an environment around that development hub where the planning rules are fairly relaxed, but outside that environment, you're, 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 you're controlled. I think people could get behind that because that would be that would be a sort of a sensible approach. Yes, you can have your rural area, but you're within a catchment of of an economic hub. But they don't treat them as economic hubs. They just simply say, well, this is where the population exists. So that is going to be our de facto economic hub. But we're not going to invest in it. 
but we're just going to tie all of our planning to it and we're going to base it on population figures that in some cases can be 10 years out of date. And so that, uh, and I'm conscious of your time and I know we, we have to finish up shortly, but I suppose something you've said has really struck a chord to me and that is planning is supposed to be community led and it's not, it's very much being driven by the department. And, and um, one of the points that I've been making for more than a decade now to people generally is that planning is a public function. So therefore we want the community to get involved. But actually one of the things that has, you know, before uh, you know, I, I can remember back uh, up until kind of 2018, 2017, 2018, we had this public apathy. They just didn't care enough until they got really, really, really angry. And now they care. And now we've got public anger. So we went from apathy towards our planning process and, and planning regime to this sense of anger. And it feels to me that there has been an element of community shutout by making things very complicated, by having public information locked away on PDFs that were very inaccessible. And for something to be community led, I mean, this is why we have locally elected representatives. So is it a case that I mean, I would take the view that that politics is overly involved in a lot of what we do around housing um, delivery. But is it a case that maybe do locally represented or local representatives um, do they have a larger role to play in planning? Oh, that <laughs> now that that would put me in a very difficult situation. I mean, we we had a situation where we had a lot of local planning rules, and then we had a lot of local planning rules that were heavily influenced, shall we say? And then to to deal with some of that heavy local influence, we set up in Borbtonola, which was supposed to be an independent decision maker in respect of making sure that local plans were were done for cogent and sensible, objective planning reasons. And then the difficulty that we had was then we, we ran into difficulty in that we were getting inconsistency out of board Planola and, the, you know, certain influences appeared to have been brought to bear. And board Planola then um, was not seen as a as a institution that um, required trust. And there has been a couple of tribunals of inquiry. And um, we have a situation where they're even talking about re, redoing board Planola. Um, I don't know what the answer is, but I know that what we have at the moment requires um, rethinking. And the, the, even the Sustainable and Compact Settlement Guidelines for Planning Authorities, that consultation public paper was published in, 20, in March 2023. And the cutoff point for discussion was the 27th of April. So the entire dialogue that dealt with our population strategy for the next however long, it was one month. So that was the entirety of the, di the dialogue and the, and the discussion and, and the consultation, if we could call it, with the local authorities. Um, and nobody, you know, that's published on the department's website and then there's that, that's it, you know, and we'll have the draft development guidelines being published. And you know, it's very difficult, absent a sort of a dialogue, to get it right. Um, because you have to be able to listen to all sorts of viewpoints. And if you don't get those viewpoints, well, then the default is you only get one viewpoint. And that one viewpoint then dominates everybody else until, you know, we, we figure out some sort of mechanism for that to change. But that, at the moment, we only have kind of one voice in the room and it's, it's speaking over everybody.
And um, I, I suppose I, I'm conscious that the nature of the conversation we're having today, we weren't ever going to reach any point of not even resolution, but really any any uh, point of clarity. So just, I, I suppose, to wrap up, um, let's focus on some of the cases that you're dealing with at the moment. And for people listening in here who might be considering a self-build or just at the early stages of embarking, or maybe they have already been refused planning and are wondering about the next stage. Um, the, the litany of problems that, that we've discussed here today, do you see any hope of a resolution in the next year or two around those? In the next year or two? No, no way. Um, you know, it, it is, uh, it requires a sort of an honest which we're not good at in Ireland, a sort of an honest acknowledgement that it's a little bit broken. Um, and until you sort of accept that and, and, and come to terms with that, well, then you can't, you can't define a solution because you need to sit down and define the problem. Um, and defining the problem is, is constantly moving because the data that everybody is relying on is not accurate and if you don't have accurate data you, there's no way you can define the problem if you can't define the problem accurately you can't define the solution accurately so what we get instead is a series of reactionary sort of policies all of the time that deals with that one particular issue and no more until we have the next crises in that particular issue and um i think that unfortunately is is the nature of government um which is a sort of a reactionary you know and like I'm not trying to criticize anyone. No, I mean, it's an impossible task, really. You're never going to keep everybody happy. But we have a, we have a prevalence of um, decisions that are being challenged at a historically high rate in the high court. And those challenges cost uh, an enormous amount of time and resources. And they, are, they have not moved the dial any closer to resolving it by a sort of consistent approach you know if anything they, they, they we've kind of left sort of inconsistencies and nuances with the various sort of um, judicial decisions so um, the only way this is going to be fixed is if we just sit down and, and acknowledge the, the scale of the problem and then um, sit down and, and co collectively collaboratively um, come up with a strategy and try and, and have that strategy as inclusive as possible. Now, of course, you know, that's what the government will argue that they're doing. And um, look, to, to to finish up for this conversation today, what I will do is share a link as for circulating this episode, I will indeed share a link to the article that your, your firm um, published last week because I think it's helpful and it's informative. Um, uh, again, maybe just it's not really able to add a huge amount of clarity because, again, the, the clarity doesn't exist there. However, one of the really interesting things that I got from it, um, and I, I suppose it's something that I'd like to close out the show because I'm hoping that, like with all things, if I can't think of the problem and my guest can't think of, of the solution, that maybe people listening in combined will be able to, to you know, not necessarily always um, solve the the solve the, the um, question but sometimes they can phrase a better question they can reframe mm. it and that's something that's helpful for us but actually in that article you did essentially close off to say that actually 
our situation, particularly as it pertains to local needs, you know, just to bring us full circle, is that actually it will likely need to be challenged. And and notwithstanding what you said about not knowing where that challenge is likely to come from, but that actually that's what needs to happen for rural planning to get the kind of clarity it needs for people to be able to depend on it. So, I mean, is it a case that could you be looking at a group challenge? The challenge will not solve the problem. The challenge will simply define the problem. So the challenge will simply say that the policy that is adopted, more than likely, if it's consistent, if the European Court is going to be consistent with the logic that is approached, and depending on the phrasing of the question that is put to it, is a um, local rural um, uh, restriction in the way that it is phrased, uh, a restriction on people who are not locals from developing in a particular area. And it would be very difficult for the ECJ to, to, to kind of uphold that approach in line of the, the authority that was, was produced. Um, and when you have that decision, okay, well, then what's next? You know, what then becomes the policy? Because if the policy as crafted and as implemented and as, um, as applied through successive like local area plans, suddenly at, at a stroke that that's gone. Um, and then the question is, well, what do we put in to replace it? And how do we put that together? And that, that is what I'm talking about when I said, we, unfortunately, we get a lot of reactive sort of things. And the, the Band-Aid could be worse because we don't have the time then to, to you know, engage in that sort of dialogue. So I, I don't think a challenge is going to cure the problem or could actually, in fact, make it worse. Um, you know, because then well, what, what's left? So what I would prefer to see is a sort of proactive, constructive sort of uh, engagement with rural communities and the department on a very sort of open and transparent basis to say, well, look at what's the department's thinking on this. And, mm-hmm. you know, that, that sort of, you know, it, that doesn't apply for, um, for policing. You know, members of the public ought not go into the, to the Department of Justice and tell them how to how to organise the police. But it, it ought, in my view, apply in respect of planning. Because planning is, uh, at its heart, supposed to be community-led and community-driven. And that's why every time we have a local area plan published, we invite submissions from the, from the public. That's why anybody in Ireland can challenge any planning application. It is supposed to be an area of law that is open and accessible to all, because that is that's the fabric that drives our the the organization of our communities that's how and where we all want to live you know um satanta we we might just leave it there because actually i think that's a really strong compelling next point of action maybe that needs to happen and that is that proactive and constructive engagement with the rural communities because that's what the rural communities want too so that seems like a good place to start and um, so thank you so much for being so generous with your time and expertise today that was Satanta Landers partner at Satanta Solicitors and that's all we've time for today my thanks to producer Katie Tallon and to the production team at Hear Me Roar Media um, and also our thanks to show sponsor Property District changing the narrative of the industry if you enjoyed this episode please be sure to subscribe to the podcast and check out all of the other real estate and construction shows on iProperty Radio And thank you indeed for tuning in. We'll catch you on the next episode of the Property Roundup on iProperty Radio.